last week, the real theme, the real focus, and if you remember, we'd spent numerous weeks where we have the writer of Hebrews who's writing to these Hebrew, Hebrew Christians to call them back from their turning away from the faith in the midst of persecution. He has spent a tremendous amount of communication in revealing the true nature, not only of Jesus Christ, everything that He fulfilled in Himself from the old covenant sacrifices, priesthood, and indeed the whole pattern of worship, all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, but also is communicating how He has done all this in His infinite love for you. Okay, This has been the theme for numerous weeks as we've looked at Christ and His great priesthood and all the things that He did fulfill. And then He makes this statement, this was our focus last week, Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. The focus was the calling of God. Remember what these people were doing. They're not just momentary laps back into a sin and and choosing the wrong thing in the wrong moment and then coming back and, and confessing and receiving forgiveness and continuing in the life of the Christian. He's writing to so many of them who were denying their faith altogether in order to save their own lives, not to go through the trials and tribulation of the ongoing persecution that was upon them. That's who he's talking to. And he, after describing Jesus Christ to, the, to them... And by the way, you do realize he's describing Jesus Christ to them in the way that Jesus already revealed himself to them in the beginning or they wouldn't have come and been baptized and filled with him. He's calling them back to themselves, which really is true repentance. He says, because of all that Jesus did, we have boldness to come before him. Boldness to come into the Holy of Holies by the very blood of Jesus. So let us draw near with our true heart, which is the extent of our frailties. Let us draw near with a true heart, with boldness before God, in assurance of faith. What's the assurance? The assurance is based on our knowledge, revealed knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. That when we come before Him in all of our weaknesses and frailties, and quite frankly at times disgustingness, We come before a God who came for those very things. Who is acquainted with all of them. Who stepped into them, lived out the temptations, overcame them, so that we would have a way to come out of that. Because He so understands the pain that it brings to our very being, our souls. And so that was our focus of last week. And you heard me say this Ash Wednesday. You heard me say it last week. But it's as if we're being invited to come in and bring the filthy rags that we have on us. Which is the way that Scripture even describes it. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we bring our filthy rags to Him. And what does He do? He takes them and in exchange He gives us royal robes. Pure white linen. And He clothes us with all that is Himself. He is the God of that great exchange. That is His nature. It is why He did all of these things that we have been talking about. Now, we're going to continue now, starting in verse 23 of chapter 10. And we're going to see a little bit, I'll describe it in a minute, but we're going to see a little bit of a turning of the tide of the focus 
of Hebrews, having all of these revelations, having called them to draw near. And you'll see what I'm talking about, and, and we'll discuss it later. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Bruce, I think you've got that. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Before we go into the meaning of those few short verses, again, let's remember, who is this being written to? Christians that are not professing the faith anymore. Yeah. And particularly Hebrew Christians. This is a book to those that were Jewish, who were Hebrews that converted and were baptized and came in to Christ. Okay. All right. What are they going through? We talked about it a minute ago. Persecution and other trials and tribulations. Okay. And many of them, as we talked already, they are abandoning Christ and His church. The writer of Hebrews has put great effort in revealing the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done on man's behalf by that revelation which we mentioned a minute ago. But now we're going to turn the tide a bit. We're going to see the pastoral heart of the church that is not only the revelatory pastor's heart. One of the greatest things that any priest, any bishop, any metropolitan, any deacon, any of the clergy, from a pastor's perspective, one of the greatest things that that a clergy member can do is live such a life that constantly reveals Jesus to you. It keeps before your very eyes the nature of Christ. Because Satan and our own flesh and our own brokenness will distort the vision of who He really is. And one of the greatest pastoral roles that we carry is to keep Him before you. So that your eyes don't depart from deception. And you continue in Him all of your days. But there's another part of being a father in the faith that is no different than being a father to my children. And that is discipline. There are times in the life of a Christian and their relationship with their spiritual father when they are going so astray, their soul is in danger. That there are times that the voice of the shepherd, and I don't mean the priest, the one who's representing our Lord Jesus Christ, the true good shepherd, there's a time, remember, in that using that shepherding terminology. He's got a crook for a reason. He's got a rod for a reason. And there are times with a very serious pull. If a sheep is going into danger, and it will hurt the sheep, that he will get that thing around them and yank them to safety real quick out of death's claw. Same thing, you know this, any of us who are parents know that we guide towards truth, we guide towards righteousness, that their feet won't depart from it. And somewhere along those journeys, when they start going so far, there's a, there's a, a God-like harshness to call to them, to bring them back, discipline. Discipline so that they might not die. Okay? And we're going to see the vo- this pastoral voice coming up in this morning 
when we look at what, uh, what the writer of Hebrews says. So let's begin through that one portion. The first part, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who, is pro- who promised is faithful. Archbishop Dimitri, who I've been uh, reading his book on Hebrews, has been a wonderful guide for us in helping us through this. He writes this about that. He says, The writer is urging the Hebrew Christians to remain faithful to that solemn profession of faith in Christ that has always been made in baptism. The confession he's talking about, hold fast to the confession of our hope is the profession of our faith that we make at our baptism. And it's also the one that we renew when we renew our baptismal vows. It's the exact same words at the Paschal Vigil on Saturday night as we cross over into Pascha and Sunday, Easter Sunday. So let's remember those baptismal vows that we renew. This is what he's calling the Hebrew Christians back to. One of the questions, or I'll go through the questions very briefly. Do you renounce Satan? And all his works, and all his pomps. And then the flip side of the coin do you believe in God the Father, creator of all? Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who came and suffered for us, and in the Holy Spirit. Our very profession of faith, that which you just heard in our baptism, which is what the writer is calling us back to, that very profession of faith. Our very hope, indeed our salvation, is in that pattern. What's first? Renouncing Satan. Isn't that what we do then and all of our life? And all his works, the works that he tries to get us to do that separate us from God, the ways that we think even about life, to separate, come out of the darkness and into the light. All his pomps, the way that he tantalizes us away from God, trying to woo us away from life Himself. That's, part, that's half of the Christian journey, and the other half is the other part of the turning. And when we say turning, we know what word comes first to mind, repentance. The life of repentance. I turn away from that, and I turn to God the Father Almighty, His blessed Son, Jesus Christ, who's done all of this, condescended to become like me for me. And I turn to Him. And I follow Him in the Holy Spirit. And this is what the writer is calling the Hebrew Christians who are falling. Remember what they're doing. They're denying their entire faith and denying the person of Jesus Christ. So hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Verse 24. And... Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He's calling them back to their faith, and he's making the most incredible statement that testifies to the orthodox faith and the way that we see everything. That when we are baptized, when we turn away from Satan and come into the life of God, we are not baptized into a vacuum. We are not baptized into me and Jesus. And I am not denying the personal experience and the personal union and the personal love that we share with our Lord and He shares with us. You don't hear that. You know that. 
but we are baptized into far more, for from many pieces we have become one loaf. The Apostle Paul writes. And so he's saying, let us consider also one another. We return to the faith. We turn away from Satan, turn to God. But let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then this, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Remember one of the things we crossed over early on in Hebrews is not only are they denying their faith, but they're not coming to gather together. They've stopped coming. When the body comes together and heaven and earth are joined together, what's he talking about? You're forsaking the Eucharist. The very means by which the entire body of Christ, all living stones get put together with those in heaven and we experience the blessed gift of life being bestowed upon us in the Eucharist. And that's what he's talking about with that. I want to read to you, and if you'll just bear with me for a few paragraphs, I just think it's that important and there's no way in the world I could teach this any better than this. I want to read to you a few paragraphs from Archbishop Dimitri's writing on those verses because he quotes some of the fathers along the way. But I want you to hear his thoughts, and they really are beautiful. On these verses, he says, One of the characteristic elements of the life in Christ is concern for others. Love and good works are products of this concern within the Christian community. And from there, it must extend to all people. That is, all people beyond the community. Consideration of the members of the body for one another is the response to God's manifest love for us. I'm going to read that again because I think it's so important that we see this and understand this. Consideration, my consideration for all the members of the body of Christ, your consideration for all. Consideration of the members of the body for one another is the response to God's manifest love for us. To the Lord's new commandment that ye love one another. St. Simeon, the new theologian, bases his exhortation to his community in the first week of the great fast on this verse. He says in part, You have tasted of the true life and have obtained compassion for your neighbors from God who is compassionate. Therefore, do not fail to stir up, to encourage, to instruct your neighbors, to stir up your brother to increase effort of love and good works. And about assembling together, he says, Apparently some members of the community were guilty of rejecting the assembly. The term translated by assembling was very frequently used for the gathering of the faithful for the Eucharist. Their absence will result in the loss of concern for other members. The coming together so as to constitute the body of the church is not an optional feature of the Christian life, but an essential one. No one is a Christian alone. Rejecting the company of fellow Christians above all, he must participate in the feast of God's love for us, the Eucharist. St. Ignatius of Antioch, and by the way, just so you know, St. Ignatius of Antioch, was a disciple of the Apostle John and would become a bishop and would become a martyred bishop, the very next generation of apostles. St. Ignatius of Antioch makes a point of this in several of his epistles. 
He therefore that does not assemble with the church has even by this manifested his pride and condemned himself. For it is written, God resisted the proud. The unity manifested, listen to this, the unity manifested in the assembly is the church's greatest weapon against Satan. For when ye assemble frequently in the same place, the power of Satan is destroyed, and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. It is of special urgency that this bond of love be maintained by the followers of Christ since the day, meaning the day of the Lord, the second coming, must always be remembered. For it is that day that is anticipated by the church, indeed is eagerly awaited in the Eucharistic assembly. The kingdom to come is manifested and made present. Isn't that beautiful? But it's not poetry. It's beautiful because it's truth. Well, it is poetry. It's beautiful in poetry. But it is the most beautiful because it's absolute truth. Why do we gather together? <clears throat> Not because it's Sunday. Even though it's done on Sunday, it's the day of the resurrection. We gather together to conquer Satan. <clears throat> we gather together to proclaim the victory of Christ. More. We gather together to, ex- to experience the victory of Christ in the Eucharist. That we take that experience and it shapes us because you can't experience the victory of Christ without experiencing the love of God shed abroad for all men. And when we experience that love, if we'll look at it for what it is, get away the I don't feel like being here this morning. Uh, Your priest has those sometimes. (laughs) This morning was one of them. I'm exhausted. Okay? But when we pave away those things, we get rid of those things from before our eyes. And we come, if we will allow ourselves to experience the love of God made manifest, it shapes us to love, to love one another. And as he said in that first paragraph I read, the love of one another is the response of every Christian to the love of God. So he's calling them back to faith. Okay. Let's continue on with verses 26 through 30. Uh, Matt, you've got that. Thank you. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, if you didn't get it, that's the strong pastoral thing I was talking about a minute ago. Do you hear it? Yes. Yes. 
fatherhood is being destroyed in our culture. I could say motherhood equally, but let me stay with this for a minute because we're dealing with the church if I can, okay? Fatherhood is being destroyed because it's being stripped of manhood. And part of manhood is being like God. Because it is not true. Were we not created in His image to grow in His likeness? So part of manhood is to be like God. If I do not correct my children harshly when they need harsh correction in order to draw them back to God and set their feet back on the path of righteousness, I have not loved. But our culture says don't offend. Our culture says everybody can be and is what is made up in their own mind. They can do whatever they want, call themselves whatever they want, live whatever lifestyle that they want. And my friends, that is the path to hell. It is Satan at work, and of that there is no question. And what you are hearing when you hear words like, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Or how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? These are strong words. These words reach out to a people that now that they've had the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and all that He's done for them and calling them back to Himself, He says, now if you don't, and there's the pastoral thing. Because see, not since the Garden of Eden, and even, I mean, even in, I should say, even back to the Garden of Eden, God has never forced God has never, never forced someone's will. But God has very much dealt with the will when it goes off in order to bring it back to Himself. But He never forces. So all here you have this whole pastoral scheme of the revelation of such a beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is and all that He's done that we might be in Him forever because He desires us so greatly. But that's not where you are, is it, is what he's saying to the Hebrew Christians. That's not where you are. You are denying the one inviting you. And if you continue in this direction, I have to... It's not love if I don't tell you. But it's the truth. And he does it strongly. But he does it in truth and in love. And there's the heart of a pastor. Right? Because there's the heart of God. There's the heart of God. So let's break down this... Discipline, so to speak. Verse 26 and 27, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no lo- there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Alright, if we sin willfully, all that will happen. Let's, let's understand first what this doesn't mean, according to all of the fathers universally. Because all of us sin willfully. Now, there are some times we sin truthfully on accident. We weren't thinking. You and I know there are also times we choose, isn't there? Yes. Yes. But that's not what this is talking about. When you look at the language and you look at all of the fathers on this, 
It is those who are willfully removing themselves from Christ. When you and I sin willfully in our lives, but we remain in the church, remain in the fellowship, remain in the sacraments, and remain in Christ confessing our sins, we have our great high priest who mediates for us because we're in him. And he will not lose one in him who remains there, you see. But what about the ones like these Hebrew Christians that are denying the faith they were baptized into, denying the Holy Spirit altogether? That's the sin willfully that he's mentioning. It's also a reason, my friends, and while we have just a moment on this, I've actually been asked the question a few times over this last uh, month, Father, how do we know when we should abstain from Eucharist? So it's, it's one of the best questions I can always get asked. Because it's so critical that the body of Christ understand when it is not good to go to Eucharist and abstain. There are two reasons I'm going to give you. Two umbrella categories so that you know of when we should abstain from Eucharist. The first one is this. If we have a completely broken relationship with someone in in the body of Christ or someone outside of the body of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about one that we're working on coming back to. If we are going through the prayers, going through confession, doing everything we can to forgive and mend, even though the relationship is broken, you do not abstain from Eucharist. Because you receive the grace therein. You get me? But if we have totally cast one off, and there is complete unforgiveness in our hearts, or and you get what I'm saying. Wouldn't that relate? Because the body of Christ is one. Okay? So that's one umbrella reason. And always check with me for spiritual counsel. The second reason would be this. If we have chosen willfully, consistently, uh, a lack of repentance over our sins and sin nature. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, we'll use a big topic right now that's, that's always out there. And that is homosexual and heterosexual sins. Don't differentiate them. They're different by their nature, but they're equal in what they do within a person. If a person, for example, comes to me and is living in an adulterous relationship and has absolutely no desire out of it, this is me. I want this life. And there is no repentance. You see, you get that. That will puts them in danger of receiving Eucharist. All right? For the homosexual, as well as the heterosexual, it really all comes down when you look at both to identity. I heard Bishop Irenae speak to us about 15, 20 minutes of one of his topics while I was at the clergy retreat. And he, had, he told me of an encounter, and he said, I, I really was, uh, for whatever reason, feeling a little bit chippy on this day, but, but a homosexual came to him in a coffee house. He was sitting having coffee. Came up to me, he sat, started a conversation, and announced to him, I'm, I just want you to know I'm a homosexual. And the first thing's out of Bishop's mouth is, no, you're not. 
No, you're not. And then as they continued in that conversation, what was it that the bishop was saying that is what the church has always taught us? Our identity is in the order of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His image, in His likeness. When someone says, I am an adulterer, and I'm going to choose that. No, you're not. But you're choosing that. I'm a homosexual. I'm going to, I'm in this, I'm a homosexual, I'm in this relationship, and this is my, no, you're not, and no, it's not. I understand the choice you're making. I understand why you're making that choice. But that is not who you are. You see that. When we put that measuring step up to our lives, if there is a complete lack of repentance in our heart, where we're going to choose our way above God's, that's where this hits. And we abstain from Eucharist while we deal with this, and I pray that we deal with this with spiritual counsel and in prayer. Okay? Does that make sense? It's a my will versus not. It, it is. It is. And, and again, it comes back to, I know, I know it becomes a broken record, but it's a really good record. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says, in, in the end, in the end, there will be two. There will be the ones who say to God, Thy will be done. And then there will be the ones to whom God says, Thy will be done. So it's a great statement you make. Because that is the truth. Okay? And so these folks in Hebrews, in, we know where they are. We know who he's speaking to. They are sinning willfully by departing completely the faith and throwing it all away, saying the blood of Christ is just common, it's nothing, I have nothing to do with this. And so that's when he says this is the judgment that he fears for them because of where they are. And he starts to call them back. It really goes back to the same principle as the vine and the branches. If you think about it, the vine and the branches, you have dead, lifeless branches that get engrafted into Christ, who is the vine. They're engrafted and sealed there. The vine, the, I should say the sap from the vine goes into those dead and lifeless branches, and they begin to bloom with the fruit of the vine. They come back to life. And Jesus says, those who remain in me bear much fruit. But what about the ones who remove themselves from the vine? They've got no attachment to the life sap. It's impossible that they have life. Therefore, what do you do with dead branches? Charles, you know this. What do you do with dead branches? Cut them away. Cut them away. Take them away. Throw them away. And burn them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. Now the writer continues. And No, I'm sorry. There's one more part. 28 through 29. Let me read this to you. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? And remember that word grace, the very power of God that's the life unto salvation. It is the sap. Okay? have insulted that. The writer returns the Hebrew Christians to their own Hebrew roots about the law. They know what he's talking about when they hear this, about people dying without mercy on on the testimony of two or three witnesses of those who broke the law, such as an adulterer in the Old Covenant, and we even see this take place 
almost in the life of Jesus Christ, but on the testimony of two or three witnesses, an adulterer or an adulteress would be taken and publicly stoned to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses in the Old Testament. They know what he's talking about. Okay? And he's saying those who trampled down the gift of God in Jesus Christ, His blood, His grace, His life for us, they await the same. Okay? Now, like every good pastor or father, having all of the harshness on the table, the loving harshness of truth, having all that on the table, he returns with a healing salve. He brings some words of encouraging comfort so that they do what he's wanting them to do anyway, and that's come back to the Father's house. Okay, And I'm going to read you these words. Listen to how he calls out to them after making that statement that he just did. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, that is after your baptism... Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance." So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and not tarry. He Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I know you. I, I saw you come into the faith. I saw your baptism. I saw you filled with the Holy Spirit. Your life changed. I saw you for quite a while joyfully walk through the tribulations of persecution. I saw you. You were compassionate to me with the very compassion of God while I was in chains. This is... What's he saying? This is who you really are. You are the Christians who God has graced to endure all things in this earth. And to overcome all things in this earth. And to glorify God in your bodies. That's who you are. Return to your Father in heaven. You get that? The encouragement that I leave with you is this. Because all these are truths, obviously, for us to remember. Be mindful of. But the encouragement that I give to you based on all of this today is two things. What a wonderful thing in Lent. A wonderful thing to grow in in Lent is to even grow further in our love for one another. That as we fast and as we pray and as we engage all the extra services and things that are needful to us in our faith throughout this this season that we grow in the love of God as a response to the love of God for one another. And secondly, 
remember this. I pray that you will remember, and I'm going to read this part just one more time. Because I think we all need to remember this and be encouraged. It's, you, for goodness sakes, use this in times you don't feel like coming to church, which I know is it can be often sometimes in various seasons. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the power of Satan is destroyed, and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. In the Eucharistic assembly, the kingdom of God is made manifest and made present. We don't come to church for legalism. We come to church to experience the reality of the kingdom of God in our lives and to be changed forever by it. Let's stand.